Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. One of the core ideas that I've tried to explore on this podcast about the North American West is place. Where is the West, or plurality of Wests? What do they look like, and how do they operate? Where do Westerners situate themselves in those places, and how is their sense of identity shaped by them? One way I had yet to consider in addressing these questions was that of leaving or returning to a place. How do we think about Western homes differently when we leave? And how does our outside experience inform relationships with Western homes when we return? Today we chew on this a bit with Karina Cook, whose intimate collection, Leave Takings, published by the University of Alaska Press in 2020, shares experiences that at least for me, resonated very much with my Western identity in new and unexpected ways. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Karina Cook is a former Fulbright Fellow, an Alaska Literary Award recipient, and a Rasmussen Foundation awardee. She holds a PhD in English and creative writing from the University of Missouri, and currently lives in Alaska, where she teaches, writes, hikes, explores, and has adventures. In her collection of essays, Leave Takings, published by the University of Alaska Press in 2020, She shares stories about her comings and goings from her home in Alaska. She writes of her childhood, of the present and of the many years between, of Alaskan mountains and seas, of wildlife and heavy industry, of living with a set of relationships to a place, and of how those inform relationships with death and dying in the same. While some of the Alaskan landscapes and realities of living in them may seem unfamiliar to some Westerners, There's much here that will speak to anyone who has spent any time outside of suburban sprawl, pondering one's place in broader Western landscapes and environments. I, for one, will bring new eyes and ears to my next outdoor adventures, having sat with Cook's essays. I will also think about home differently the next time I visit. I suspect others who read leave takings will do the same. Karina Cook, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you for having me. Can you let us know where you're recording from? 
Yeah, I'm calling in from Lingitani. I'm in Southeast Alaska. Um, I was born and raised here on the traditional territories of the Akwan Clinket and Takukwan Clinket um, in Juneau. Great. Um, I don't know if this is the farthest guess. No, I did have a guest call from Finland, so that was probably the farthest. But um, well, I'm really happy to have you, and I'm really excited to take our podcast um, back up to uh, the far, far Northwest. We did a episode with Bathsheba DeMuth about the Bering Strait. So we've touched a little bit on Alaska, but your essays bring us, I mean, that's, if Alaska's periphery, the Bering Strait was kind of the periphery of the periphery. So you kind of bring us back a little bit more to continental, uh, territories, uh, and I'm really excited to, to do that. I like pushing the boundaries of how we think about the West. Um, your book uh, is, uh, it's essays, they're poetic, they're reflective. And so it's hard to do an interview like I do with some where we just kind of work through the content of the book together and talk about stuff. Um, and so instead, I think I'm going to be pulling some broad ideas and questions that your essays brought to mind, and then we can chew on those together. So I want to start by thinking of having you kind of think out loud about the West and what it means. You don't pitch your essays as explicitly Western, but as I read them, it resonated with all of my very Western life experiences. So, so how do you think about yourself and your identity uh, in relationship to the West? That's such an interesting question. I I think often of the West um, it, kind of academically in terms of Western civilization. And then when I think of the Western US, I think of, I guess I think of it as kind of like a grandfather. I think of the West as a place where um, a lot of experiments were run and a lot of discoveries were made, and um, and Alaska is repeating many of those same experiments, and repeating many of those same discoveries. But on occasion, um, learning something from a discovery made in the West, for example, um, the West was heavily mined. Right, the extractive economy in the West is pretty darn interesting. Um, I spent some some time a, a year writing um, as an undergraduate, a year writing about the pebble mine debate in Alaska. And that entire conversation um, relies heavily on lessons learned from Montana. Um, so I so I see the West as absolutely part of the lineage, um, although it it doesn't occur to me every day to place myself on the map. You know, I feel very, I feel very included when a conversation about the West acknowledges and involves Alaska, um, because often it doesn't, you know. Yeah. Uh, so do you think yourself more of Alaskan as its own thing? But when invited to think about the West, you're like, you think, oh, yeah, it, things kind of match up here and connect, but it's not how you think about yourself day by day. Yeah, absolutely. I would. I. I don't think I would introduce my introduce myself as, you know, a thinker from the West. <laughs> um, but I think we have a lot of common ground, um, and that's you know that's a, that's like an area that I could explore and grow into. Um, but it's certainly 
you know, we're a long, we're a long ways away from the deserts of the Southwest. You know, it's really, really easy to go all week without, you know, remembering um, that, that, you know, New Mexico exists, for example. Yeah. It's, you live in a strikingly different, different, strikingly different surroundings. Um, Well, maybe just kind of help us try to situate Alaska and how we think about the broader North American West. Um, We can, we could use your, the introductory essay um, as as a good starting point about this 4,000 mile road trip you take from uh, where you, uh, from uh, where you did your graduate work in Missouri back up home to Alaska and how you intentionally uh, drove instead of flew. And you write because you wanted to, quote, um, look at the large ancient continent and you wanted to look at the shape of it. So thinking about that road trip and, and other times, you know, you traversed the lower 48 uh, portions of what we would think of as the West. Um, how do you, how do you situate some of those iconic Western landscapes or the Great Plains or the Mountain West or the Desert Southwest with, um, with your Alaskan homelands? Um, is Alaska just a variant of the West that us lower 48ers know, or is it something uniquely different? How do you situate it as you, as you've driven across the whole thing? I wish I could answer that question. I confess I I know so little about how um, Westerners think about the West that I I can't necessarily, you know, I can't I can't necessarily speak directly um, to how they think and how I think because I, you know, it's a it's a major blind spot for me. I know that I'm I'm very I'm very interested in imagining when I when I've crossed parts of the West, I've been very interested in imagining it um, let's a century ago, two centuries ago. I've been very interested in trying to see underneath the infrastructure that's on top of it right now. There's it's um, and, and so I, I will identify this as a probably very specifically Alaskan perspective. It is incredibly built up. The West is 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 truly incredibly built up. Um, and there are, you know, there's parts of it that have so many roads, there's so many towns, they're so close together, there's so many people. Um, there's parts of it that are parks and there's rules and parks and there's parts of it that are agricultural. And you think, oh, what was underneath that before, before it was agriculture? Um, and so I think, I think if I, if I really have if I get anything from my Alaska perspective, looking at the West, um, I think I get a lot of really good hints uh, about what, you know, what, how much of it shows through the infrastructure um, that exists right now. I find it um, really fascinating. Kansas, for example, fascinates me. I don't, I don't even know if that counts as the West, but Kansas, for example, fascinates me. Um, because it is uh, the shape of the land is so different than I come from fjord country, mountains come up out of the ocean. Um, I come from an archipelago. There's a lot of islands. I find it amazing to think about standing somewhere in Kansas and finding your way someplace, like walking to a place that you know is there and getting there and then turning around and walking back. I find that incredible. Um, And 
And I, I spent so much of my life and time in Alaska, you know, learning landmarks, remembering landmarks, you know, don't drop off the mountain in that direction. They're not going to find the trail. That's going to be a cliff system. And I look at Kansas and I think this is incredible. I can't see anything, but this place has been, you know, people have lived there for millennia who can see things. Anyway, so that's, I think that's what the situation does for my thinking. Yeah. Like uh, when I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, my wife grew up in the Phoenix Valley. Um, and so we grew up in places where there's lots of visual landmarks, right? Like, oh, mountains that way, ocean that way, or, you know. And then we lived in Nebraska for a decade about, and it really weirded my wife out. She said it made her feel exposed and vulnerable just because the landscape and the, it was just so big and there was no no visual markers to help her situate herself, you know, where, where she is. Um, but it's interesting you say like in Kansas though, like there's a freedom like that you can just walk in a direction. I guess there'd be fences and stuff, but this idea that you don't have to be as um, concerned about the danger of the landscape and looking at which route am I going to take to get around and over obstacles? It's just wide open. Yeah. And it actually is really reminiscent of the Arctic, um, which is, you know, this vast, vast area of Alaska and Canada in which I have virtually no experience. It's an, a completely other universe. Although at this time in history, there's, you know, a great piece of the Arctic that's called, you know, Alaska, supposedly it's the same state that I'm from. Um, but it's incredible to, uh, you know, to, to have family friends who can speak about finding their way across what to me looks like undifferentiated sea ice and tundra based on information like the direction of the wind and the slightly different texture of the snow. If the wind, the dominant wind has been, you know, kind of ruffling the snow in this way, then you've, it's kind of like a compass point. I mean, there's, there's phenomenal crossover in some ways between how I hear people from the high Arctic talking about moving around on the land in the Arctic. And then how I imagine one must do this in the plains. Your experiences in Alaska, the way you write, indicated to me or seemed to suggest that Alaska features um, a style of living um, where so many of, so many of the modern conveniences that many of us uh, don't even think about, but that we have that kind of buffer the harshness of our of the environment that insulate us from you know the outside natural world. Uh, it seems that in Alaska, a lot of those things, at least in you, the stories you tell, have been stripped away, leaving you with a much more raw, direct, inescapable relationship with the natural world. Um, even if you're living in some of Alaska's cities, it seems that the immediacy of nature and the environment is, is, is more pronounced than I think it is for lower 48ers. I don't think lower 48ers is a term, but I'm going to use it. Um, lower 48ers incidentally is definitely a term. It is. Okay. All right. I've never referred to myself like that. Maybe it's a term for Alaskans. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we talk, we talk about outside <laughs> and that means the lower 48 and we talk about the lower 48. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you have to say about this, about as you also lived in California and Missouri and you've, you've traveled around, you know, some other places, um, 
how do you think Alaskans might think differently about the immediacy of nature and the environment and danger and risk? And it, it seems you, you can't ignore it in ways that, that I can. Well, my experience is that Californians and Missourians think very differently about this. I find it kind of anthropologically fascinating, the, you know, the sort of academic experiences that I've spent uh, down south, <laughs> um, sort of studying people who are absolutely not paying attention to the things that um, we all are automatically always paying attention to. Um, so that's absolutely a disconnect that I have observed and um, and pondered uh, deeply. I I will say, for example, it is completely normal for us to have a sleeping bag in the car. One should have a sleeping bag in the car. Um, that's basic. Why should one have a sleeping bag in the car? Because the car might break, the, the land might slide. Like you don't know if when and where you need to stay warm. Um, in my, the part of Alaska in which I was born and is one of the kind of the three areas that I, that I, you know, live in at this time, um, is it's a, it's a temperate, uh, coastal rainforest. It is just as easy to, you know, kind of mess up in the summer um, and become hypothermic and actually have very serious problems. You, you know, this is not just a, a winter thing that you would need to just make sure you don't get cold. You make dumb mistakes when you get cold. You just need to, you need to be prepared to don't get cold. <laughs> you know, um, you can get a little cold and you're fine, but you, but things get weird when you get real cold. So you, of course you have a sleeping bag in the car. That's necessary. You have a shovel in the car for similar reasons. If you, if you're cutting corners, like I will admit, I sometimes do, then maybe I only have an Avi shovel in the car, you know, a small portable avalanche shovel that backcountry skiers would carry in their backpacks. That is cutting corners. You should have a, a big solid grain. And, you know, I don't know the last time you dug a car out of a snowbank, but it's nice. You want it, you want the right size shovel, you know? So, so those are some of the just really normal kind of daily things. You, you, I don't think you necessarily see people walking around telling each other very profoundly, you have to respect the weather. That's just baked in. You respect the weather, you know, it's, it's going to change and it's going to throw challenges your way. And you want to make sure your kids can get off and on the school bus um, in a good way. Yeah. Like you write that you grew up, like when you get off the school bus, you look both ways to for wildlife, like, or when you step outside your door, that's just kind of a baked in habit, something that you don't even think about. Yeah. And you, and you should do that. Um, you know, down, downtown Juneau is one of the places where you do see black bears, you know, the first bear I ever saw, I was three years old. My dad had taken me to the bank. We came out of the bank and there was a mama with cubs in the street. And, and yeah, you, you look both ways for all of the traffic, whether it's on the street or on the trail or on the beach. <laughs> Again, it just, yeah, it just strikes me that, uh, I mean, I, we had a bear show up uh, within, I don't, it actually walked right past our kids elementary school and then got treed um, in one of the trees at city hall, like in the middle of suburbia, but obviously this bear kind of wandered down at night into into the suburbs and then um, out of the hills and you know once it got light outside it was a little 
climb up a tree to hide, you know. Uh, but generally, I don't have to worry about. Uh, I don't have to worry about wildlife. Um, even when I go trail running and play in the mountains, I don't even think about it that much. We're not, it's not crawling with, with bears or moose, although we do have bears and moose, but just not quite as many. I should though say that it's not only worry. It's also, there's camaraderie and there's, I mean, there's a lot of different relationships. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a deep set of relationships. And so you're partly looking for bears because they're beautiful and they, teach you things about, you know, where the food is at. Like, I mean, it, it's always cool to see, you know, like how healthy is that animal? What does that tell me about last winter? You know, anyway. tell us the story about um, the otter. You and your dad are out looking out over the water and you see, uh, you know, an aquatic mammal swimming um, uh, and crying. Uh, and, and then and, and, and there's an eagle in this story as well. I think that maybe this is a good example about how wildlife interactions aren't all negative or something to be scared of, but how they teach you something about the landscape in which you live. Can you kind of briefly summarize that experience? Yeah, absolutely. That that's an that's an important conversation for me. Also, um, I was I was very small. My dad took me on a walk in a place where we often walk. Um, so many of my essays in, involve the North Douglas boat launch, incidentally, very, very central place for me. Um, it, and there was a mama river otter, you know, swaying back and forth, crying and shrieking. We didn't, you know, we didn't know immediately what was going on. We pieced it together by we, I mean, my dad, <laughs> you know, I was just there. Basically an eagle came down. There's a lot of eagles in the zone. It's a, it's a lot. Of, so an eagle came down, plucked at the water, got something, you know, they often hunt um, or fish uh, with no success. Um, they're really good scavengers and, and they're, they're good. They're good hunters, but it, but you know, it, there's, you come up dry a lot of the time, but this time it, it got something and it, you know, it flew away. It was too heavy. It landed in the ditch a ways down the road. And, um, you know, and, and we, and then it picked it back up and flew again. And, and we walked down there and there's a lot of blood and that was, you know, so the next day there was this crying and shrieking. Um, and so the way that, that, that we pieced it together, that my dad pieced it together was that, ah, that, that Eagle fished this, um, river otters pup. And, you know, you know, made a successful kill. It was a baby river otter, but there's a mother river otter on the other side of that. And she's mourning and grieving. And we went back um, several days in a row and she was there going back and forth, calling, calling, calling. Um, and on one hand, you know, this is so sad. <laughs> you know, this is so sad. There's nothing like a bereaved mother. I have a personal fixation on, you know, the mothers of dead children. I'm very interested in, in this. And so this was one of them. And what, and one of the conversations that my dad really opened at that time with me was that the Eagle is a mother also. And that Eagle was able to feed her babies. And that in fact, she has to feed her babies. Like she is being a really good mother. And that is how you be a really good mother. Um, that's an ongoing zone of thinking and feeling and expression for, for me. You know, we are all in these 
really deep relationships. And some of these relationships are absolutely consummated by, you know, death. Um, we rely on one another. We were, we absolutely rely on the death of others to put life into our own bodies. And we all, and by we, I mean, you know, the universe, <laughs> plants, animals, fungi. I don't know if I can think this through with rocks and waterways, but <laughs> we could go there in a, in a poem at some point. Yeah. This is where my kids would start singing the Lion King, you know, the circle of life or something. As we've had these discussions, you know, when we find, you know, a half-eaten deer carcass or something on the trail. and Oh, that's so sad. Or, I'm like, it is, but you know, that mountain yeah. lion had to eat too. Oh yeah, I guess that's right. And then they start singing the circle of life usually. No. <laughs> I, I want a version of the circle of life that just has more minor chords in it. Um, I want the circle of life. A more done, somber. But, yeah, by a real blues artist. <laughs> Somebody with a, a sense of the, um, the gravitas involved in that circle. Yeah. So maybe in Alaska, you just, maybe you're faced with that more often or more regularly or in, in a more consistent way that it just becomes part of your awareness um, that uh, a lot of even Westerners, I mean, most Westerners live in suburban urban settings, even though we often think of the West as rural or uh, unpopulated. Uh, uh, Geographically, a lot of it is, but demographically, the population is more is the most urban and suburban population uh, in the United States. But how do you um, Alaskans think about outsiders coming in? That's something I'm curious about, which um, I saw around the edges of some of your essays. Um, but as you're mostly focusing on very much of an insider perspective, uh, I, I sometimes think about when I go to national parks and I, I consider myself pretty outdoorsy and Sometimes I chuckle when I see people out on trails and they're decked out in just $5,000 worth of the fanciest outdoor gear that I mean, I would love to be able to afford. And they look like maybe that is the, they look the part, I don't know, maybe they don't. And I'm there and, you know, whatever I'm wearing, um, but they're struggling to hike. They're struggling. So, so they're wearing the gear to be outside, but it's not who they are. Like they, they got kitted out for this expedition, you know, to walk along a paved path in Yellowstone and they're kitted out to a ridiculous degree, right? My kids are in flip-flops. Um, and so I, sometimes I think about the insider outsider or who belongs, who doesn't, who's kind of an imposter. Um, how do Alaskans, so, I mean, all of these stories you're telling, uh, it's because you were raised there and you have a very different perspective. How do you guys think about when other, when, you know, Americans come in from the lower 48, even ones who are really experienced in the outdoors, are you suspicious of them? Do you roll your eyes at them? What's, what's the relationship between the kind of insider outsider relationship between Alaskans and non-Alaskans who come to visit or, or come to live? You know, there's also a lot of insider outsider relationships within Alaska um, and there are so many very different perspectives that are, you know, Alaskan perspectives of outsiders. I, um, I, I can try to, I can try to touch on a few. I certainly can't represent them all, but, um, 
Yeah, I think that a lot of us, a lot of us love these places, just love these places. And if an outsider shows up because they're interested and curious and like just open hearted and into it, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, my, in my circles really embrace that. Um, if you are an independent traveler who figures out how to get a couple of ferry tickets and take a couple of airplanes and, and go around, I mean, that's extremely cool, right? Because it, it took some effort to get there. Yeah, it took some you don't effort. Just cash, and, you don't and there's some independence go. there. Yeah. It's It's very difficult to... It's very difficult for me to say anything positive about um, the the tourism industry as it has taken shape. Um, the cruise industry is an ugly thing. That's where I'm coming from. I am not the only person who thinks that. There are other perspectives. Um, some people will argue that the cruise industry is important to Alaska's economy. Fine, I'm not an economist, um, but I think we know a great deal about um, how those multinational companies uh, own so many of the little gift stores that their passengers are funneled into, as well as how many passengers never leave the ship. Um, there's absolutely some negativity to plum in that area, particularly because I'm from Southeast um, and Southeast is a cruise ship destination. And um, yeah, my perspective is, is that, uh, is that, is that that's one of the, that's one of the least rich, most impoverished ways of, um, of getting here and, you know, kind of not being here, doing a floating hotel with Alaska around you. Um, but that aside, I think what, what's really important about, about the, the question um, is also internal to Alaska. There's, you know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human inhabitation here. And, you know, I'm from here and that I was born here. My parents weren't born here, you know, um, like my, my roots here are personally very deep. But when you, when you think of me as, um, as a, as a drop in a human current, um, like I'm, I'm just part of, I'm just part of westward expansion and, and the stupendous land grab that, you know, makes America, America. Um, and that's, um, that's something to live with, you know, that's not a, that's not a, a weight that I carry, I guess, in like a simple way. Um, and I think a lot of us have to find ways of, of, you know, on one hand, finding a degree of peace with the, the simple facts of our complicity and some histories that are really like brutal and, and, and that maybe disgust us personally, but, but, you know, created our reality and that, and, you know, we were active participants. I'm an active participant. Um, there's absolutely some insider outsiderness to think about um, quite locally, quite regionally and historically. And I think I put um, much of my energy into trying to learn about and respect 
some of those histories um, as opposed to really noticing that like, oh yeah, for a couple months of the year, people from down South show up um, like that. That's cool too. You know, some of them fall in love and then come back and stay and most of them don't. And uh, I don't know, it's a, it's more on the periphery for, for me. You also put a lot of energy into thinking about, it's not just, you know, tourism uh, that is bringing outsiders or outside influences to, to the landscape, but um, lots of uh, other industry as well. And when you talk about your experiences up at uh, the Pebble Mine or um, during your, I guess not cross-country, cross-continental road trip going through mining and logging communities, you know, up in the Rockies and the Cascades. Um, the division for many of us between the natural world and extractive industries or infrastructure, I feel like down here it's often the, the, the lines are blurred a bit, things are softened a bit, but the way that you write about uh, roads or mines um, as you know, scars across the land, it seems like the division between the natural world and human impacts or actions in that world are very stark. Um, how do you, how did you feel, you know, as you're making that road trip and, and, and seeing the, the remote, you know, these remote mountain landscapes, but then cut and bisected by roads, by logging, by mining activities. How does that make you think about the landscape? Um, Cause I feel like that it, it's such a stark divide. And again, we're like here, I live in the suburbs and I know that there's water infrastructure and roads and stuff, but it kind of just slowly blends up, up into the mountains. And I don't think about a hard line, not in the way that you write about it. Well, I, I, um, one thing that, um, one thing that, you know, listeners should, should know if you don't happen to have a map in your, in your mind, when you're crossing the, the continent and driving to Alaska, there's a, a, a lot of Canada that you, you know, that, that you go through. Um, and, and if you're me, then you're not, you know, you're avoiding interstates and you're, um, trying to avoid any urban place at all. So, and you're also, if you're me, you're trying not to, you're never going to drive more than six hours in a day. So I think, you know, making a two week traverse is always too fast. That's too fast. You know, you can obviously do this, you know, much faster, but, but I think you should do. So you, so you spend, um, a number of days in the continental U.S. and then, if you're wise about where you choose to cross the border uh, from the U.S. into Canada, really good place to do that is uh, right around the Canada's Rockies. You know, so then you get to spend a couple of days playing in in the in the Rockies in the Canada. You know, and those are really great mountains, and it, it's a park, and so everyone, you know, you get your park pass and that's hilarious, but you, but then you have a pass and you go in and there's animals and the animals all know they're living in a park. And so they're, you know, they're park animals, they're wild in some ways, but they're park animals. Um, they, you know, they're not hunted, um, in, in the same, I know animals always know if they're in the park or out of the park, right. They behave differently on one side of the line than the other. And it's very visible. Um, and then it is, you're going North, you get out of the park <laughs> and when you get out of the park, 
then you get into heavy industry. Um, it might still be very, you know, towns are very small and they're few and far between, you know, it's still, it's wilderness if you kind of accept that word in, 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 in a different sense than it was in the park and the, you know, the, the logging trucks, the heavy machinery, the whatever kind of rigs one drives when one is part of, um, oil drilling or mineral extraction, you know, um, a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, the couple of other cars that are, that are going to be on the road are, you know, they're industry affiliates, they're on the job, they're, um, they're working hard. They came from and love probably, you know, someplace else. Um, and they're, you know, they're going in and out of the woods to make money. They're, they're cutting um, roads into the woods to access things that, that they can extract. These are, you know, projects that are generally speaking funded by and run by um, major multinational corporations. <laughs> um, so there's a, a lot of level of levels of planning and decision-making. The local governments are... Um, you know, they're part of the regulatory processes and a lot of those regulatory arms are, um, uh, are very friendly with extractive resources. Um, so there's, you know, there's a great deal of, um, of, you know, local debate and disagreement about who gets to run a road where, um, and anytime you put a road in, it, you know, think of it as permanent. It turns out, <laughs> turns out that once there's a road in, people use it. And if you, and yeah, anyway, so that's just an interesting thing that the, the road scientists, the, but the, but the road experts tell us that they, once you put a road in, the road is not going to get reclaimed. The road is going to stay a road because the community will use it as such. And roads are really powerful. They dramatically else, change. So many things follow. So many things follow. And we have, you know, plenty of data about what species will cross roads under what circumstances, what species will not cross roads under X circumstances, you know, how, how frequent does a, how frequent do the cars, um, have to be before, um, before a deer will stop crossing the road is a very different answer than how frequent the cars have to be before a bear will stop crossing the road. There's, um, again, I think coming out of, of places like Montana, there's fantastic information about these island populations of certain animals that will cross roads and the animals that will not cross the roads um, once they reach a certain threshold of use and busyness. Um, it, it creates a really, really different um, system when you cut it up with roads, um, you know. So how strange to drive through it and, 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 you know, see it. It's, it's very different to, to be a, you know, to be a happy, dreamy hiker with my notebook in my backpack that who just gets to go up mountains and be joyful. It's just very, very different to get on the road and see, you know, oh my God, there's flames, you know, they're burning off gases. Like they're, they're doing climate change in front of me. I see it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like so much of this sounds to me like um, 
something that I would have read about a hundred years ago somewhere else in the, say, the Mountain West. I mean, like Alaska is the last frontier. Do, do you think it holds that some of the much mythologized, you know, narratives of the Western frontier um, are still playing out just a few generations later in Alaska in ways that we're not experiencing quite as much down in the lower 48 of the West? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of the same stories that are playing out um, simply, you know, a couple generations later and on occasion, um, there are some, some pretty interesting differences. Um, you know, I, I, I go back to, to mining over and over, I, I realize, but, um, but, you know, there's been so many, um, you know, eco disasters around mines in the West. So many, you know, so many. Um, I don't think we have an example of a mine that hasn't had a, you know, a substantial disaster associated with it. Um, and given that, uh, that's really slowed down some of the permitting processes that occur um, in Alaska. Has it slowed down those? processes enough. If you're me, you think, no, absolutely not. But, um, but if you are, um, if you're much more pro extractive resources, um, and many Alaskans are, um, then, then there's a lot of frustration with how slow and ponderous the permitting processes ha um, have become. But I think that, that we owe, uh, some of those, those hoops, <laughs> you know, we owe them to federal legislation um, which is always you know, being dismantled and various, you know, we, we, we owe this to federal, um, uh, uh, modes of federal management. And we, but we also owe this to some of the narratives that have come out of, um, big mines, Utah, Montana, and some there's, there's been serious work from, um, some indigenous communities and some non-indigenous communities to talk to Alaskan communities and, you know, there's, um, there are groups of people that have, have been, you know, flown down to see, you know, a major mine down South, you know, to simply help. Here, them here's decide. what's coming. Like, right. It's here's like, warnings to think about. Here's right. Uh, if you really want those jobs that you get with that pit, you know, like, like we understand being on food stamps. We understand that, that you can't, but we, we understand economic hardship. But if you think the answer is to dig a pit, like we want to show you our pit before you, you know, so that I think that's that some of, I think that some of that really sense of, I'll call it like a larger and larger Western community. I think that some of that has, um, has actually really, really helped Alaska. Interesting. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, I want to think about uh, water and the ocean a bit. Um, as I was reading, a lot of the way that you write about the ruggedness of Alaskan uh, landscapes, it really re resonated with a lot of my own experiences in the Mountain West and Desert Southwest. Um, the ruggedness, the scale of nature, you know, the, the immensity of it. Uh, the, the inability, therefore, to like ignore the natural around you because it's so big and so challenging. But what's unique about how you write about a lot of it is that your Western landscape in Alaska 
is tied also to seascapes and to the ocean, you know, to salmon and otters and whales and tides, um, which uh, for, I guess, for some coastal, you know, Americans may be somewhat familiar, but uh, I don't know, living on the Oregon or California or most of the Washington coast still sounds very different than the kind of coast coastal relationship that you're talking about. Um, so how does, how, and, and you have lived in California and you have been other places in the lower 48. So how does that just constant proximity when you're in coastal Alaska, at least, uh, to that proximity to the ocean kind of change, you think, your, your relationship with the broader landscape or how is it informed by water in ways that say me here in Utah, I just wouldn't think about, even if all of your writing about the mountains and trails and all that resonates with my experience here in Utah. Uh, what's, what's different for you there? Well, I, I think that one of, one of the things that I'm always thinking about as a writer is how do I, how do I use all of this, um, my incredible world? How do I, how do I use this as my most basic grammar like so let's say my questions are largely philosophic and but I want to work them out um, in an actual laboratory and my laboratory is I'll call it the north you know but it's like this part of the west in this context um, and and a, a major a major thing that I'm interested in both you know philosophically aesthetically um, is cyclic return cycles, you know, um, the water cycle, water rains down, you know, goes in a Creek, evaporates up and makes a cloud. It rains down. That's cool. <laughs> um, some of the cycles that really are just central to my world as a Southeast, um, Alaskan have very much to do with salmon coming back. Um, this has a lot to do with my world, but this has also a lot to do with the world as it has basically always been, you know, before um, any of the settler waves um, came to this place, this is a movement that really propels reality. Um, fishes, you know, they, they spawn in freshwater creeks and streams. The little fishlets, depending on the species, will either live there for a brief time or a potentially a little bit longer time. And then they go out into the ocean and they, and they swim about and they live in the Pacific and some of them go to Japan and, you know, there's a and depending on the species again, maybe it'll come back in three years, maybe it'll come back in five years. Um, but it, but it comes back, you know, it comes back home and many of them spawn in their natal streams. Uh, and there's a lot of explorers too, you know, our, this, this whole system is so dynamic, you know, a landslide happens, a stream no longer exists. It's a rainforest. There's a lot of water coming down the watersheds, new creeks happen, you know, so there's a lot of fish that explore by fish. I mean, different species of salmon, but, um, so, so many of them go home and some of them explore and this major wave of nutrients comes in every summer and it's what the eagles are eating. It's what the bears are eating. Um, the eagles, historically people it's, it's what we're all eating too. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like, like drop everything when you catch a white King, like, yeah. oh my goodness. <laughs> 
Um, I mean, I've read studies where they've even tracked like, you know, tracking the nutrients of dead salmon who often die after they spawn, tracking those nutrients as they leach out, not leach out, but as they spread out into the surrounding, um, not, not bears and eagles, but plants and trees and, absolutely. and fungi, can... like everything lives off of, off that salmon. You can track um, strong salmon runs in the rings of a tree. Wow. We don't think about trees eating salmon, but. Oh, but they do. They rely on it. We don't have a lot of soil here. You yeah. know, it's just a little bit of really acidic soil sitting on top of bedrock. So their, their roots don't go, don't go deep. You know, they go out, out laterally and it, it matters what lands on the surface. You know, that's a lot so of. So are, are you the salmon? Am I? I mean, because your book is, you know, about departures and about coming back home. It's about, it's a lot of it's about you coming and going. Um, it, it, yeah. Yeah, it is. And at the same time, it, I'm, I'm absolutely not, I'm absolutely not a fish. A fish certainly belongs and a fish is part of something larger that's happening. It's not clear to me that, um, that I have. That you are? <laughs> right. That I play any, a role that's comparable in any, any way. Um, I am very interested in, in arrivals and in departures and in continual returns. Um, and I have, you know, I have, I have many moments in, in this book that look at, at those questions on a pretty, you know, personal level. Um, but I think that really what's it, at stake in those questions is a, a lot bigger than, you know, a kind of drifting someone who moves about and moves again and moves again. I think we're coming back to, on a really big, big scale, we're coming back to some of the, um, some of the vegetation patterns that the like paleontologists know things about and is, as the, you know, the North is warming, we're, we're wondering if some of these, um, some of these kind of drier South facing slopes with grasses. And so on, we're wondering, oh, maybe what that, that ecosystem might spread again. That's the sort of ecosystem that we saw in the North, um, during Beringian times, during the ice age, before there was a boreal forest in the North, there were grasslands, right. And we're kind of wondering, oh, things are drying and warming again, we might be returning to those grasslands and to that time when there was a land bridge between Asia and North America. And so many animals, humans included, were walking back and forth across it. So you definitely think in very cyclical, very cyclical patterns. Um, I, I sense that, yeah, the way that you present time is not, is very nonlinear. I think that there is a bit of, um, I think there's a bit of solace to be found there. Um, there's a lot of reasons to be grieving uh, right now. There's a lot of reasons to be grieving for settler colonial reasons. There's a lot of reasons to be grieving around climate. Um, and, you know, the world is transforming, culture is transforming, inherent in transformation is loss. Um, that's complicated, you know, that's complicated, but I don't know that grief is the only, um, coherent response to loss. Um, and I think that in cyclicality and some of these 
just like larger big picture searches for a cycle <laughs> that there's a there's a way to have a little bit of a sense of humor around what in the day to day absolutely registers as um as just clean simple loss um I don't think it's clean, simple loss if you zoom out far enough. Mm -hmm. It seems like you you write at one point about uh, as a young child, like 10 or 11, kayaking out into open water, uh, open out into, I think, cross sound, uh, and having kind of a profound moment of... Um, finding your your sense of self and where you situated in you know, the universe around you uh, this really resonated with you know early experiences i had hiking and playing in the mountains and recognizing that the larger natural world into which i fit but very much land-based uh, and you had that you know epiphany uh i'm trying again I'm, i have a I have an 11 year old I'm imagining allowing my kid to kayak out into open water. That sounds bonkers. Um, but, uh, you, you did, and you, and you, you kind of found the sense of self, right. But again, tied there to the ocean, um, as you've left and then come back when, when you return to that landscape and seascape that was formative for you finding a sense of self, do you find when you return that you think about it differently than you did when you had left? And then again, on repeated leavings and returnings, how does your relationship with that land and your sense of self in that land, scape or seascape, how does it change and evolve? It's very surprising to me every time I come back, how completely normal it is. I have been told, you know, once you leave the village, you can never go home. <laughs> Um, and I, and I deeply believe that I deeply experience that. And at the same time, every time, every time I return, it's so awesomely normal. It's just so automatically completely normal. <laughs> um, and I think that is more surprising to me than anything else is how, um, it's just fundamental. It's just like, that's my background. That's where I come from. This is, these are my basics. Um, I, I don't necessarily always realize when I'm away, how much effort I'm putting into just contending with something that's not normal and the level of ease that I feel when suddenly normal things are normal again. Um, so I think that's, that's the, that's the, that's part one of the answer. Um, and, and, you know, part, part two is that my thinking, my thinking is really influenced, um, by, you know, some of these, the academic study years that I've spent learning, um, about, uh, about social patterns and about some histories behind some social patterns and about politics and about some of the ways in which power moves. Um, and so when I first read Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, and then came home and it was so wonderfully normal, um, but what was different was that I could see how this, this is profound sense of, of self that I had from 
exactly those trails and exactly those beaches was like, oh man, that depended so much on some really simple facts, such as that my parents had the means to get me a raincoat. Every time I outgrew a raincoat, they got me another raincoat. You can't go play outside in this weather without a raincoat, you know, you know, um, and you have to have boots that fit and you have to, you can't go on the land if you don't have clothes for it. Um, and, and I, and so I think that what has, what changes for me with every return is not, is not at all my relationship to the place, which is just in some ways, such just like this even center line, everything just revolves around it. It's invisible and lovely, you know. Um, but what really changes for me is every time I get an insight um, into how how others um, have not necessarily lived on this land in the same way that I did and do, and ideally will. Um, I think that's that's where the yeah, that's where my lines of sight have really multiplied and continue to multiply. Hmm, that's fascinating. I like thinking about place and belonging a lot. And so the way that you write about place and belonging, but in the context of leaving and then coming back, I find that really powerful. And it's something that I want to think about more as I think about where I grew up and where I live now. Um, I feel like I need to be a little bit more, I need more intentionality in being cognizant of how I look at things differently or what new insights I might have about place when I come back. You know, I, I grew up in, on the Canadian border, you know, north of Seattle. And, um, you know, I like to go back every, uh, I would love to go back every summer because summer in the Pacific Northwest is pretty hard to beat. Um, but every time I go back, you know, the place looks different. It's growing. And, uh, but I'm also a very different person. And, and I do see that I, I, whereas back then I maybe would have as a kid, like, oh man, they built a new little housing development up on, you know, up on the, the trails that I used to mountain bike on. And now there's houses there. And that, or actually when I was a kid, this set of mount, this mountain that I used to mountain bike a lot on was actually owned by a logging company. And every once in a while, but they allowed us to bike on it. And every once in a while they would go and they do a big new clear cut and all of our trails would be gone. And we'd have to like throw our bikes over our shoulder and walk along these logs to try to find, well, how do we get through this clearing? And where does the trail start again? And that really bothered me. But now I come back and I look at that and maybe it still bothers me, but I have this very different understanding of, you know, logging and economies and development and all those things. And um, so, so your, your writings make me want to be more acutely, intentionally aware of what I'm bringing back home differently um, than when I had last left it. Well, I would hope, I would hope that, um, that ideally that is something that comes out of this, this book is a little bit of a sense, um, a sense that home is deep and home doesn't give you all of its layers. You know, it does, it, it's got something to say to you, but it's not say it's not telling you the whole story and it's not going to tell you the whole story, but the more you get the story from elsewhere and come back, then like, then home will tell you something new. Um, if you're lucky. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a, maybe that's a good thought to end on. We're kind of at the end of our time, but, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. It makes me uh, want to read less 
a dense history and more, you know, uh, more kind of reflective prose. Um, I find a lot of, it makes me want to write more of this as well. Um, I was joking with my wife that I started writing out some questions that I wanted to ask and realized that I had started writing in this very kind of poetic, flowery language. And I'm like, I can't ask a question, but it's because that's how you're writing. And so my brain is kind of in that moment. I'm like, that's going to sound ridiculous if I say this question out loud like that uh, in this you know, super flowery language. Anyway. Uh, well, I really... you know, there's a glorious move <laughs> in academia um, away from some of the really dense um, academic writing voices towards some of the more creative forms that we, you know, that we glean from literature and that we can't, you know, you can't make every argument in technical language. There are some arguments that resist technical language. There are some arguments that demand scene. Um, so there's quite, you know, there's quite a bit that, that literature you know, yeah, we're just, absolutely has to offer. We're, we're not that. trained very well in, in doing that. And there's very few of us, at least as historians that I mean, to bring her up again, Bathsheba DeMuth's, uh, her writing is hard-hitting history, but so poetic and and evocative and and lyrical and it just makes me so mad. I'm like, it's not fair that some people are good historians and these amazingly beautiful writers. That's just not fair. They get to do it both. But um... She's got a really <laughs> fantastic grasp of narrative structure and she understands um, with great nuance the value of beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. And she knows how to use beginning, middle, and end as a serious tool, much more so than I do. I work much more associatively. There's, um, there are ab absolutely, you know, things that that I too can learn from Bathsheba about constructing literature. Well, maybe it's something that comes with spending a lot of time outdoors, because from her background, it sounds like she did, and it sounds like you did, as well. So. Maybe there's something to be said there. Um, thanks for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Um, and I'm gonna keep you on my radar as you publish uh, pieces. I know you publish in a lot of different venues, but um, in book form as well. I well, I really appreciate the conversation and thanks for having me. All right, thanks so much, Karina. Mm -hmm. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast, or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else, so you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. 
Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, Dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers.